Hey, everybody, this is Allison Macrina from Library Freedom Project, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Gary Parker, and today we have episode 219 uh, for May 10th, 2021. And uh, we're going to be talking today with Alice Macrina. She is the founder and executive director of the Library Freedom Project. Uh, and I'll talk about that a little more in a minute. Uh, before we do, a uh, couple notes. The super secret product launch date will be uh, almost surely May 24th. Uh, I'd like to do it for next week, but I don't think I'm going to have the website ready in time. So just to give myself a little padding, give me two more weeks to get that done. I finally got these things in my hot little hands. And uh, I can start telling you a little bit more about it. Uh, it's going to be something that will let you improve your security in a way that will hopefully be fun. And uh, in this case, highly collectible. <laughs> there are only 100 of these things existing on the planet. Uh, so if you're into rare things, you know, hey, this is, this is going to be one of them. <laughs> so... There will be, uh, as I mentioned, a whole website dedicated to this, which actually anybody can use. But if you become a patron, and I'm still working out the details of this, but if uh, you become a patron, uh, you will get this cool new thing and be able to do it in a really kind of fun, unique way. Actually, as part of this whole launch thing, I'm going to be doing some more work on Patreon and adding some more cool features, adding actually a whole new tier on Patreon. And um, I've actually talked with a existing patrons right now trying to iron out what those things are going to be and we're having some just kind of fun discussions anyway we toss around some cool cool ideas we've been kind of recommending movies and stuff to each other and uh it's it's just really cool i love the chance to directly interact with you guys so i'd love to see you there check out patreon.com search for firewalls don't stop dragons and uh get on that discord server now that I'm retired, I'm branching out a little bit. I'm trying to do some more things and find uh, other ways to keep this business <laughs> viable. And one of the things I'm doing is starting to do some public speaking and some consulting. So I just did this last week and it went over really well. I, there's a local women's group that uh, somebody in the group saw one of my lectures at Duke and really liked it. And so reached out to me and had become talk, well, over Zoom, talked to their group about cybersecurity and privacy. And I think that went over really well. I got some really good feedback on that. And so what I'm going to be doing, if you're interested, and you can reach out to me at info at firewallsdontstopdragons.com. Uh, you can find that information on my website, firewallsdontstopdragons.com under the contact tab. But if you would like me to speak to a group, uh, I'd be happy to do it. Uh, we could work out the details. And uh, I've got uh, a slide deck uh, all ready to go for the, like kind of some basics of cybersecurity and a little bit of privacy, but I'm open to doing custom topics as well. And so then also I'm going to be, I think, going to try out do some consulting, some one-on-one -on -one consulting uh, currently just over Zoom, which means I could do it anywhere on the planet for people who want to ask me a lot more questions about their personal security or privacy situations and what I can might be able to do to help you with that. So anyway, if you're interested, shoot me an email info at uh, firewallsdontstopdragons.com. All right. So let's set up today's interview. It was a lot of fun. I had a great discussion. Uh, we're going to talk about all sorts of interesting things that maybe you haven't thought about, honestly, and things we actually have not really talked about directly on this show, uh, at least as related to public libraries. So for instance, book banning, how does that actually work? Like how do how do how do books actually get banned? What's is there a process to this? Are there laws around that? Uh, 
who gets to decide at the, in the end what books are on the shelves at your local public library or perhaps your school library? How has all the media consolidation affected our access to information? If you're not aware, there really are very few book publishers. There are very few investigative news sites anymore. There are a lot less print you know, magazines and newspapers and TV stations, at least in terms of ownership. And how does all that affect our intellectual freedom and our access to information? And then, on top of that, what about privacy? If you want to read a book or research a topic that might be a little, you know, politically or socially sensitive, where can you do that today? You might think you could just do that at home or on your cell phone, but, it, you know, if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you know that you may be getting tracked and that information may be recorded somewhere. And what about mass surveillance? I mean, have you found yourself going to search on a topic and thought, eh, maybe I better not use those search terms or I feel weird doing this because I wonder if someone's watching or if this is going to put me on some list somewhere. That all comes down to intellectual freedom and access to information. And that is part of what the Library Freedom Project is all about. And it's something that's actually very important for society and democracy in general. I will warn you off front, I guess, another trigger warning. Some of the subjects we discuss in relation to intellectual freedom and whatever have a decidedly liberal bent, but don't let that throw you. This is important for all of us. So uh, despite the particular examples we discussed today, keep in mind that this covers all aspects of things you might want to uh, research or look up or learn about to enrich yourself or protect yourself or whatever. That's your right. But it's a real, also really fun discussion. And we even talk about the lethality of furniture, believe it or not. So well, let's not waste any more time. Let's get to part one of our interview with Allison Macrina from the Library Freedom Project. Allison Macrina is a librarian, privacy activist, and founder and director of the Library Freedom Project. Allison's passionate about fighting surveillance and connecting privacy issues to other struggles for justice and an analysis of power. Welcome to the show, Allison. Hey, thanks, Carrie. Happy to be here. Uh, I was introduced to you by a mutual friend, Sean O'Brien, uh, who is involved in many privacy and open source stuff. Uh, and when he told me about your project, I was really, really intrigued to learn more. So I'm so glad to have you on the show. And uh, we really need to start there. So first things first, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and the project? Like, you know, and how did it come to be and what are its goals? Sure. Uh, so as you already said, I'm a librarian. I have been a librarian for about, I don't know, 10 years or so. I started Library Freedom Project in about 2014. The way that we came to exist was that I was very inspired by the revelations that came from Edward Snowden in yeah. 2013. So yeah, right. Big, big world changing stuff. Yeah. And um, when that happened, I was already very interested in free software. So I was already a user of of mm -hmm. free and open source software uh, in my own time. I was also very involved in different political causes. And part of my motivation for becoming a librarian was because I was very moved by the history of libraries, like information mm. activism and privacy activism and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so when the Snowden revelations happened, I was really obsessed and intrigued by the whole story and following it very closely, but also thinking about how how it intersected with my work and how librarians have had this very long history of, mm -hmm. of defending privacy in different ways. And I saw a lot of 
parallels with what was happening with the the Snowden docs and what I what I saw as opportunities for bringing that information to my community at the time I was working as a, a public librarian. But I saw a lot of potential for you know d- library workers in different contexts to learn about what was happening, understand it, and and put it in a context that made sense for their community members. And because because one of the things about the Snowden revelations was that I didn't really see how the story related to people's real lives, mm. everyday realities in, in significant ways, or at least it wasn't being talked about. I could see those connections. And right. so I started Library Freedom Project as a way to kind of bridge that gap, help library workers understand issues of privacy and surveillance in the real world, and then think about the ways that we're really uniquely positioned to offer our communities, not just education around privacy, but to make better privacy practices in our libraries themselves. And so what we are today is really a community of practice for library workers who want to bring privacy uh, strategies and techniques into our libraries through a lens of, of social justice, make libraries into more kind of privacy centric spaces, and then, you know, help foster more of a privacy culture broadly. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that's that's what Library Freedom Project is. Fantastic. That is so cool. Uh, Thank you. And it's so funny. I mean, I wonder how many things we're going to trace back to Snowden uh, and, and all the mm-hmm. ripple effects that that has had. Because that, that's how I got my start, too. And, you know, and I was always kind of a private person personally. But, I mean, I, I didn't really think of it in the broader terms until until those bombshells hit. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, and, you know, I know that I think from just our brief talks prior to this, we're both just kind of privacy advocates in general. But, you know, your expertise in libraries is something I've got to tap into while I've got you. So mm-hmm. first of all, and before we dive maybe into privacy specifically, you know, access to information is, you know, obviously what libraries are kind of all about. And it's obviously been important always, but, you know, and it's crucial in today's world in the age of the internet. So, and, you know, and I think when a lot of people start thinking about this, it's probably already going through some of the audience's mind. <laughs> one of people, you know, one of the things that always comes up in this context is like banned books, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, public libraries and, you know, maybe particularly school libraries are often the targets of this, you know, groups that wish to limit access to certain subjects or maybe even particular books. And so I've always been curious to know, you know, in practice, how, how are these issues resolved and who, and who gets involved? Like, is this strictly a local matter? Like, does each kind of county or whatever or school system decide this stuff or is there some overarching I don't know how does that work yeah it's it's kind of complex for sure I mean I think one thing I want to say before I get into some of the details of how it functions is what are we talking about when we talk about like what kinds of materials Mm -hmm. are being limited and by whom and so those you know it, it probably won't surprise your listeners that the way that censorship or attempts at censorship happen in libraries really reflects the bigger cultural trends and and cultural fights that we're having in all areas of society. And so when it comes to things like books getting banned or attempted to be banned or attempts to limit the library offering certain kinds of materials, we're talking about pretty much only a couple of categories of materials. So I would say one, probably the biggest one, is any kind of literature or programming about LGBT issues Mm. specifically for young people. Mm -hmm. So things like drag queen story times have been extremely popular in libraries and they're exactly what they sound like. It's, you know, (laughs) drag queens come and read books to children and it's about as fun as it sounds. Um, (laughs) 
But there are some very conservative and reactionary oh, sure, elements yeah. in a lot of communities who don't want to see this happen. And, and you know, so the drag queen story times are an example of the kind of programs hmm. that that get fought against. But the materials reflect that same kind of challenge, right? So like any any queer lit for, for young folks, anything about exploring trans identities, anything like that is is usually a, an enormous focus yeah, of the attention sure. of, of the yeah. kind of forces who want to restrict things. And then the other category would be anything regarding like Black Lives Matter, any mm. issues about race, specifically anti-racism, um, a really hmm. big issue in academic libraries right now is how much folks who work on different issues around critical race theory or anything that mm. kind of even sounds like that, any mm -hmm. diversity, equity and inclusion issues, they're being super duper targeted as well. So I, th I think it's important to to put it in context of yeah. like, what are we what are we talking about? What are they actually right, going right. after? Mm -hmm. And then so like who is doing the limiting and where? I mean, it really depends on the kind of community that this comes up in it, it you know a lot of more rural or conservative places this is an issue you know the american library association definitely does get involved when there's an issue of of attempted censorship or or removal of something from a collection when it garners a lot of attention and so like mm -hmm. if there's for example an effort at the state level uh, there have been a few states that have tried to introduce legislation that would limit the ability of libraries to, you know, create their collections as mm -hmm. they wish. And mm -hmm. this is this is re very related to the LGBTQ materials. So sometimes the ALA does get involved. Sometimes it's a matter of local state level library organizations that will come in and try to help whoever it is that's attempting to do the censorship, try to help them understand what libraries do and why we have to have diverse collections. Sometimes it is a matter for the, as I already mentioned, for the for the state legislature. So it's it's really it can be a complex political issue, and it's one of the reasons why libraries have been getting more and more involved in different kinds of advocacy efforts because it's not just as simple as someone coming in and saying, "I don't think this book should be here. I want it removed." Mm -hmm. There is often pretty organized opposition that will you know get to to the level of attempting to make laws that will right. restrict the library in, in what they can purchase. But are, are there actually laws built around this? Like when I think about this, I can't think of like lawsuits. I, I, I can't think of like, oh yeah, yeah, there was that ACLU case where they came in and, and took the side of blah, 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 library in some county. And there's no really laws governing what content is, could be available or maybe shouldn't be available in a, in a library, is there? You're right. I mean, because it would be, it should be a First Amendment issue, yeah. right? But what, what has happened is that there have been attempts at, passing legislation or introducing mm. legislation and and none of them have been successful so far i mean there was there was one in missouri there was one in i believe it was tennessee i think another introduced in like florida i don't have the list in front of me but the point is that even though these have not been successful to you know making it past committee or or having significant support from lawmakers, it still is a huge pain for libraries to go through this whole process sure. of having to fight potentially bad legislation because really all you get, I mean, yeah, you get to like walk out the back door and go back to your library there. But the effect of, you know, censorship is a, is a really interesting thing that like it can affect us even when it's not you know, officially sanctioned in some way, you know, it doesn't oh, sure, have yeah. to be law. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I imagine a lot of these libraries 
even if they are are successful at stopping the attempt to ban a certain book or stopping the effort at restrictive legislation, that still has an impact on the kinds of risks that they're going to take when it comes to different kinds of information access, you know, right. even in a in a in a sort of subconscious way. Right. Like so they're right. they're going to be less likely to do these things in the future or they're going to think twice about it because, the, you know, these this kind of opposition can be pretty scary and intense to have to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that, that I that dawned on me as I was kind of putting my notes together on this is one of the other things that is, has had a massive effect, on, I think, on access to information in this country in particular is all the consolidation that has happened in like the book publishing industry, print journalism, uh, even TV stations. So before one more question before we dive into the maybe more privacy topics, what's your view on how that's impacted our access to information? It's a super good question and a, a very important one, I think, that we don't really spend a whole lot of time thinking about, you know, as a society or or even particular people who are interested in things like information access. So there's a really fantastic essay that Noam Chomsky wrote like 30 years ago. It's hmm. called A Propaganda Model. And I mention this because, you know, Noam Chomsky, the media theorist, he lays out, I think, a really really salient and still very timely argument for like how this actually looks in practice. So, mm. you know, people, people, I think, see the way that media is being consolidated and they think, well, I still see all kinds of viewpoints expressed and I still get to buy the books that I care about. And so is there really censorship happening when only, what is it like now, five publishing houses yeah, control right. all the, all the popular you know, print, and then about as many control the academic publishing environment. But we still see lots of different material out there. So how does this really enact any kind of censorship? And so what Chomsky talks about is that what is happening is there are these different filters. So one filter that he talks about is the kind of big business filter. So these, the, the big companies that have consolidated, fundamentally, they are really big businesses and they are beholden to their shareholders primarily. They're not, they're, they're more interested in what their shareholders think than right. most of their other stakeholders. And so those shareholders have a political view about how to, what the, what the publishing house should be focusing on. Another filter is the advertising filter. So that's mm. another kind of moneyed interest that has a stake in what gets published and what doesn't. And so the effect that all of these filters have kind of overall is an overall way of promoting status quo views. It doesn't mm. mean that dissident views aren't going to get through those filters. It's just that they're going to be much less likely to. Mm. And so the effect that that is in libraries and overall our access to information is that dissident and marginalized views are made to appear even more marginalized and even more fringe than they maybe actually are. And so, and, and then the kind of more status quo views are made to look more like, you know, they're, they're fairly unchallenged. And so, you know, this is, this is very impactful in a library in particular because the way that we end up making purchases, a lot of these things are getting very consolidated. And so like getting materials from independent publishers and smaller outlets like that, it just becomes even more difficult. And there are all different ways that kind of like mass market stuff is incentivized. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. I know that you have a particular point of view when it comes to, you know, how the concept of intellectual freedom and free access of information relates to privacy. So maybe that would be a good segue. How, where's that relationship? What is what is that line that draws between those things? Well, these are all things that are related to our ability to be human beings, right? These are all about expression. And I think, you know, the the biggest connection is that if you don't have privacy, you really can't have intellectual freedom. So even if you have very good information access, if all the things that you want to read about and research and write about are are available to you and easily accessible, there still is the issue of who is watching you and what are they going to do with that information about you? And so, you know, to put this in more real world terms, if I am a person who has a very serious need for privacy, like for example, if I'm an undocumented person and I don't want that information to be revealed about me, my information seeking habits can reveal those parts of my identity to an observer. So I might be looking at information about how to become a citizen or what rights I have as an undocumented person or how to get a medical care as an undocumented person or any any of these things. If someone knows what I'm looking at, they can use that information to exploit me and I'm going to make my information choices differently if right. I if I feel that I'm being watched. So that it's it's got a broad kind of connection to censorship and self-censorship. Yeah, and it's it's the panopticon world that that really you know, and this is again, this is something that that, I, that my eyes are open to this when I started you know after Snowden and I started looking into privacy more and how it's much more of a collective thing, and it's we do act differently when we're being watched, and it doesn't just because you search on something doesn't mean if I wanted to search on terrorism or if I wanted to search on uh, whatever topic you, you think might trigger some <laughs> NSA filter somewhere. If I know, or if I even if I think I know that 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 might be tracked or traced to me, I won't do it. In fact, I think I were, and this might be apocryphal, but I, I there was a I recall seeing some sort of a study saying that searches for terms like around explosions or or bomb making or whatever dropped precipitously after uh, what was it? I don't know if it was maybe after Snowden. I think it was probably it probably was after the Snowden revelations where people. It was. Um, I think what you're thinking of. I think it was a Pew study. But I I know that I also read this and yeah it was right after Snowden and it was and they pulled on a a wide range of like you know anything that could be interpreted badly mm-hmm. by some law enforcement or intelligence algorithm or keyword you know identifier right. or whatever yeah no there there absolutely is and and actually now that I'm thinking about these studies I'm pretty sure there was also one I think it was by Penn Penn America possibly that just looked at the effect on journalists and researchers and the way that they changed their information-seeking behavior based on what Snowden taught us. So yeah, I mean, there's measurable effects on knowledge and knowledge production, absolutely. I mean, there's always been this tension, right, between, you know, the right to privacy and the desire of law enforcement to monitor our activity in hopes of preventing crime and terrorism. I mean, particularly and certainly in the wake of 9-11. So do we need to give up, you know, some degree of privacy in order to have more security? You know, what principles need we keep in mind that might guide us to strike this balance? Or is it a false choice? Well, I, yeah, I do think it is a false choice, but I, I think I want to focus a little bit on the idea of, of creating the balance, right? So if we're even going to talk about 
the idea that we need to have some balance between these two things, then we need to talk about where the imbalance actually is. Hmm. And the imbalance right now is that it is very, very easy for law enforcement and for other intelligence agencies, law enforcement at the local level, law enforcement at the federal level, agencies like ICE or other you know parts of DHS or whatever, they have enormous access to surveillance um, mm-hmm. capabilities. They have, you know, I mean, from what we learned about from Snowden, you know, at the NSA all the way down, their information sharing between these agencies, mm-hmm. the fire hose capabilities that they get from like, you know, different social media, the shiny high tech tools that they are purchasing year after mm-hmm. year. I mean, their budgets for this stuff oh, is enormous. Yeah. Yeah. And and the checks and balances that exist are are really, really insufficient. I mean, we're fighting a lot for them to, for example, always seek a warrant mm-hmm. when they want this kind of information. And the warrant requirement isn't even that much it's not even that much of a barrier, right? It's fairly yeah. easy for them to to get a warrant. And and not to mention that an enormous amount of this surveillance happens warrantlessly. Yeah. Um and so so I think I think, you know, the real convo is, you know, n- not like how do we get to this balance, but we need to first address the the crisis of policing and we you know when we talk about things like you know the the demand right now for defunding the police the surveillance aspect of it is a is a pretty big component mm. because surveillance technology is a huge part of the enormous budgets that police get yeah and so you know they don't need all of that equipment the only other thing i want to say about this is that i also think in thinking about how we strike a balance between having a a safer society and having a society where we have more privacy, I would like to kind of, you know, challenge the idea of what we think of as security. You know, there's, there is a common exercise in the kind of like privacy and anti-surveillance space and also in the police defunding abolition reform space where people are asked to think about like, what does a secure community actually look like to you? Mm. And very few people, when asked to describe these communities, they don't, they don't describe like cameras. <laughs> they don't talk about having lots of cops around. They don't talk right. about barbed wire fences. And these are all things that the kind of like law enforcement mindset does think of. When I think of a safe and secure community, I think of a community where people's needs are met, where they right. have neighbors who care about each other. And so, you know, I think... If we can start from that kind of framework and then think, okay, well, if there, are, if there are still ways that we need to be secure that maybe we have to give up some of our privacy for, we can have that conversation. But there's a lot of stuff that we need to talk about and deal with before we can even get to that. Yeah, that is a fantastic point. And I think, and I think that is often missing in some of this. And, and that is, I, I think, and I, I was reading this somewhere, maybe it was in a book or something, but I know several people I respect have mentioned this point. And, and that is when 9-11 happened, we were really, a, a lot of a lot of our agencies were caught flat-footed and, and they were, I think, ashamed of what happened and rightly or wrongly. I mean, I'm not trying to judge judge that at least here. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But, um, and, and I, you know, and the, this mantra became, you know, never again. And that was a dangerous mantra because I, I, I think it led to, you know, first of all, there's, there's only so much expectation of, of security that we can really have life is not safe. I mean, you know, unless mm-hmm. you want to nerf your whole planet, you 
you know, <laughs> by just the virtue of living, you're you're risking death and mm-hmm. or or you know something bad happening. It's like in relationships, right? You, the only way to not get your heart broken is to never fall in love, and that, that's no <laughs> that's no fun. Right. So right. So mm-hmm. I think it, it behooves us as a society, as a people, to decide and come to grips with what the real risks are. I mean, terrorism, for as horrible as it is, is really low risk. I mean, it doesn't happen hardly ever, and you know, in, in matching risk to reward or, you know, as determining what what is the ideal, quote unquote, safe life look like. And it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think somebody, I, the, the the likelihood of dying on a terrorist attack is something like the same likelihood of getting killed by your furniture. <laughs> you're going to have to, you're going to have to fact check me on that, but I'm pretty sure it's uh, furniture related death is more likely than terrorism. I, if I if I can find that, or if you can, I will I will include a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's classic. Uh, okay. Um, this is something I'm I'm curious. It, it, just getting down to brass tacks. If, how can law enforcement right now, like local or federal, can they access things like my library records? And if if so, like under what authority or and in what conditions? And then then separately, does it is there a different rule probably for like intelligence agencies? I mean, the, the short answer is sure. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about some of the conditions, right? I mean, so the, the, the first one is, you know, before we even get into the, the capabilities of law enforcement and their authority and all that, in my work, one of the things that we focus on a lot is, do library workers understand what their rights and responsibilities mm. are when it comes to sure, yeah. complying with law enforcement requests? And unfortunately, many of them don't. You know, I don't want to blame them as individuals because this is really something that we um, we lack good training on in libraries. It's one of the reasons why my organization exists. But mm. so, you know, just a just a quick anecdote. When I I was a librarian in the town outside of Boston, Watertown, where that was a big focus during and after the Boston Marathon bombing, mm-hmm. and there was. A rumor, and it also might be apocryphal, but I think it's telling because it could be true, that when the investigation into the Sarnayev brothers was happening, that somebody in the library system that I was a part of, like the bigger library system that included all the towns in the area, that someone in that system had voluntarily shared the library records of the two brothers oh, wow. with the police without any warrant or even <laughs> without a request for the information. Huh. And unfortunately, like, I don't know if this really happened or not, but it very easily could have happened. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one, the the kind of like lowest level issue is do library workers know that they should not share that information unless with a, a warrant that is signed by a judge and dated and all the elements that a warrant mm-hmm. needs to have. Mm-hmm. But the next tier is, what are we even talking about when we talk about library records? Because the records that are in the possession of the library itself, you know, law enforcement is supposed to come in with a warrant if they want access to that information. But lots of library records now are are on the servers of mm-hmm. third-party vendors, right. and they're compliance with law enforcement can look a lot different than a, than a public entity. So like they can, you know, they might be subpoenaed for that information or they might have some other kind of of relationship with law enforcement. So yeah, I mean the, the, the brief answer is yes. (laughs) Law enforcement can get access to your library records. Um, It's one of the reasons we teach librarians about their rights. And also we advocate for um, good data 
retention. So deleting things that are no longer needed. So as for the intelligence agencies, those come up a little more rarely. But again, they are very capable and they operate a lot in secret. And so I would say, yes, they also can access your library records. We do have some history in libraries of rejecting these kinds of requests. So specifically, some years ago in 2005, I think is when it happened, there were a group of librarians in Connecticut who were served with a national security letter, which is a, it's a, it's a request for information from an intelligence agency and it, and you know, famously they usually come with a gag order. So you like get this request and you're not allowed to talk about the fact that you got it. And so these librarians did fight back against this request and eventually the request from the FBI was dropped. Um, And so they didn't have to comply with it. But the thing is, this could be happening in other places and we just wouldn't know about it because of these gag orders. And so while I think it's, it's unlikely that it is happening, if it did, you probably wouldn't know. Well, and that's an excellent point. And that is what I'm finding certainly as, as, as I learn about privacy is that a lot of times what you, the first step in any of these things is transparency. And so it, it's one thing, it's like the FISA courts and things like that, where a lot of these things are happening without any oversight by journalism, let alone about the general public. So just from like... Practically speaking, and I suppose with the national security letter, we've already addressed that this wouldn't be possible. But if if law if could I check to see right now? I mean, could I go to my local library and say, has my record ever been pulled by law enforcement? You know, I I would love it if you could. <laughs> I was just sorry. I was just kind of daydreaming about that would be a nice service to offer. But but frankly, no, you you couldn't. I mean, there are a couple of things that are in the way there. One is that because the environment the ed- the education of librarians around this stuff is so scattered like i don't know of a library that is keeping good records about when they get these kinds of requests i don't know of a library that has policy for how they share that information with their patrons if these things have come up they've been in response to dealing with that issue in the moment um and that's not a great time to right determine um, such policies. But, you know, to the rest of your question, I mean, uh, what, like the one of the issues is that library records, we don't have good standards around how long we keep that kind of information mm. for. Now, that said, one thing that did happen pretty well across the board in libraries was after September 11th. So librarians were very opposed to the Patriot Act. And you know, as a professional body, there was a lot of focus on it at that time and thinking about different mitigations that we could mm-hmm. put into place. And so one thing was that we started to encourage the default deletion of library records. Great. Yeah, that's good. Like all of our different software systems that mm-hmm. are used for checking books in and out, all of those by default, if you if you bring the book back on time, there's no more record of you having mm. that book. Now, again, this is complicated by our participation in, you know, different, you know, vendor contracts and mm. and having different platforms that are not entirely in our control. So, sure. if you check down an ebook using one of these third-party platforms, the record retention is totally different and also the ability for hmm. other entities to have access to it. And so, yeah, the environment gets pretty complicated when we include all these other parties. 
Yeah. Oh, that brings up a whole other can of worms. Yeah. So mm -hmm. yeah, the whole thing of eBooks and the check, it's such a painful process to go through and it shouldn't be, but it is. Uh, and I, and I, you know, it's DRM, it's content that's, you know, it's licensed. It's not like a, you know, a dead tree book that I like, you know, <laughs> that you, mm -hmm. you know, that you could, that you could check out. And so, but with that, you know, as you mentioned, comes this whole other thing and it's, you know, because we're in the cloud era where, you know, we don't, yeah, there's all this stuff's probably not sitting on some actual physical computer at the county, you know, library branch or headquarters or whatever. It's they've contracted out to some third party company. And, and, and so it's sitting in the cloud with some of the third party vendor that has access to this stuff. And in today's world, this is law enforcement in particular, and I'm sure intelligence agencies as well have realized that they don't have to collect this data. Someone else is already collecting it. And so yeah. they could just make an end run around the fourth, fourth amendment. And cause I'm not asking, you know, the library for it. I'm asking for cloud service, ABC, you know, for access to it, which means I don't need to get a warrant. That's right. That's right. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know talking to me is sometimes a bummer. I'm really sorry. <laughs> oh, I get that same feeling all the time. I yeah. talk to people too. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So, um, this is, as you mentioned, this really is the golden age of digital surveillance. And I hate to ask this question next, but I've got to, is, do you know, in your position, have you run across situations where there's been pressure on uh, libraries from local authorities, or I guess even intelligence agencies to install, you know, high tech monitoring, monitoring equipment, right? This is all for our benefit, right? All for our safety is what they'll say, you know, license plate readers, facial recognition, key loggers, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, you know, there's so many different ways today that we can be tracked as we move around the world. Has there been any cases of conflict here uh, with libraries and law enforcement trying to install these kind of things? Oh, sure. So obviously when we come back next week, we will finish the answer to that question. And we'll talk about how maybe going to your local library might be more private than buying from Amazon when, in terms of choosing your reading material. We'll talk about how the pandemic uh, has affected local libraries and what it has exposed about uh, how, as a society, we access information. A lot of people, you know, we take it for granted, I think, a lot of us with our smartphones that we have access to the internet anywhere, anytime. But a lot of people still don't. And that means they've got to go somewhere to get that. And that is often your local public library. And finally, we're going to talk about a really cool uh, project that uh, Allison did with one of her local libraries, uh, setting up a Tor node. Uh, we've talked about Tor in this show a couple times before, and it's a really great project that was actually, I believe, originally funded by the U.S. government, ironically enough. But if you really, really want to surf the web anonymously, you need to know about Tor. And what a great place to host a Tor node then at your local public library. And it caused quite a firestorm and it will give cause to talk about the Streisand effect. So a lot of more fun stuff to talk about next week. And then after that, we'll do a new show and that new show should correspond with the launch of the super secret, highly collectible new thing. Can't say, can't say much more about it yet. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to go get ready for my poker game. Uh, I have not hosted this game for over 15 months. Uh, it's something I really have a good time doing with some buddies here. We, you know, everybody puts in 20 bucks, so it's not a lot of money. Though it's funny when you start using chips, you start forgetting the value. It's like, oh my gosh, I got to put a red chip in. Who's can't believe they're betting 25 cents. <laughs> anyway, I'm really looking forward to it. Now that we've all gotten our shots, we're getting together in person without a mask. 
and playing poker again. So I'm really looking forward to that. But I've got to go. i got to go get ready for my game. So on that note, go get your shots, everybody. We really need to get to herd immunity. There's a lot of people out there who have gotten two shots, but a lot of people stopping after the first shot for some reason. Uh, please go get both shots. Um, and if you haven't gotten any, go out and get them. Uh, we need to get to that herd immunity. And seriously, if you've already gotten yours and you know anybody else who's having trouble getting theirs, please help them to get their shots as well. We really are in a race against time here. At, you know, The longer we let this fester out there, the more likely there will be a new variant of this COVID that will either bypass our current set of vaccines uh, or be way more lethal or way more contagious or both. So we're really running against the clock here. We've got to get this done. All right, I'll shut up about that. Until next week, everybody, stay safe out there. And as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.